Hello everyone, this is Leopold from The Phenobolist. If you've been listening to this podcast these past eight years, you know that we always do our interviews in-house as we value the moment of the recorded conversation as well as the encounter with someone's work and personality. Uh, rules are made to have exceptions, however, and today I'm very happy to introduce you to a conversation between Amélie Tresfer and Michaela Danger around the book that Michaela recently, recently edited, which is entitled Afro-Trans. This book is the very first one published by Casrobel's newly created publishing house, and uh, with this new endeavor, the Pan-Afro-Revolutionary Collective, co-founded by Michaela, continues to inspire many of us around the world as the planetary dimension of the book's orders have shown. Originally published in January 2021, it's already been reprinted twice. <laughs> if you'd like to read from Casrobel on the Phenomenalist, you can find their two tasks for the magazine. The first one was called Unquiet Imaginaries of Black Resistance in the Phenomenalist 27 uh, in the News from the Front sections, as well as Revolutionary Reparations in our 30s issues about the question of reparations. In this conversation, Amélie asks Michaela about Afro-Trans, which gathers essays, interviews, poetry, and fictions by black trans women, men, and non-binary persons from, from and about their lived experience in a resolutely political approach, but without ever essentializing trans identities. They also talk about collective creation, black resistance, the importance of language, and crucially, love. A huge thanks to Michaela, Amélie, and the Casrobel Collective for this fruitful collaboration, and let's listen to them. Spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be, or how do you negotiate that? The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice? Hi, I'm Magrida Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is the Phenomenalist podcast, operating in parallel with the Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics, and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research, and struggle. Hello, everyone. This is Amélie Tresfel. Um, first, I would like to thank Leopold Lambert and the Funambulist for allowing me to do this interview and to share it with you. So today we're going to talk about Afro-trans identities, inheritance, blackness in France, the writing process and many other topics with Michaela Danger, who co-founded the collective Case Rebelle about 11 years ago and who edited the collective book Afro-Trans, which was published by Case Rebelle at the beginning of the year in January. Hello, Michaela. I'm very happy to talk about this new book with you. Uh, so Afro-Trans is sort of an anthology that gathers poems, personal essays, interviews, written by 14 black trans people, yourself included, uh, most of whom live in France. And in the summary of the book, you say, I quote, This book is made up of a multiplicity of voices, perspectives, and experiences. So I wanted to come back to that, to the collective aspect. Uh, one of the texts you personally wrote in the book is called Je Chante l'amour collectif. So the translation would be I Sing the Love Collective. Um, why is it important to you and what does doing things collectively allow or create, according to you, Michaela? Hi, Emily. Uh, first, I'd like to thank you and the Phenomenalist for giving me the opportunity to talk about Afro-Trans. Uh, I would say that my love for the collective goes way back. 
It probably started in the 80s when I began to get involved in hip-hop culture. I always had a preference for collective action, for groups or crews or posses. I always wanted to hear a multitude of voices or engage with the crews that were involved in all the elements of hip-hop culture. So yeah, um, with Afro-Trans, I wanted to create something that would leave space for movement. I truly believe that what is made collectively, what speaks different languages, it has the potential to reach more people. It is also a more constructive process when you do things this way. To me, it is way more interesting than a monologue or than putting out something that only focuses on one specific individual or one uh, single analysis, for example. So, in Afro-Trans, it was really important to me that no one be at the center, especially not me, and that is why there are people from different locations, different generations, from different walks of life and experiences. The book doesn't showcase, at least it's what I think, uh, it doesn't showcase a homogeneous group uh, or crew of like-minded people that are all friends and experienced the same things together. I think that we can agree that we live today in societies in which too often there is an egregious, toxic staging of uh, the individual self and it is absolutely essential that we ask ourselves what does this prevent? What are the consequences of liberal iconization? of constantly turning people into stars, constantly relying on the idea that in order to exist, a group needs representation in the mainstream media, a group needs leadership. Since the beginning of Casabelle, I think, we've been extremely critical of these ideological strategies We've been cautious not to go this way. We really think that these strategies are dead ends because to build something, even at the smallest level, you need balance. You need dynamics that create space for everyone. There is no good outcome when dynamics are based on leadership or Um, I would say uh, avant-garde, Je Chante L'Amour Collective, is also an ode to the wonderful women I live with, the women of Cave Rebelle. And it's also about paying tribute uh, to all the ancestors, people that came before us, because there are always people who did things before us, We are never the first, and we must always acknowledge this fact. Uh, in Je Chante L'Amour Collective, I also wrote about some of the many paths and stories that have built Afro-trans identities. Inheritance is crucial. Lineage is crucial. You have to be aware of it and to be humble. You need to quote other people. You need to tell about your sources. And, for example, even if it is widely accepted that Cadrebel was the first black podcast in France, we were able to exist only because we inherited from past generations, from people, from people we often mention in our work. Yes, for sure. And we'll come back to this idea of inheritance uh, later on. But yes, so this collective approach definitely creates a deliberate heterogeneity in the content of the book. But this heterogeneity is also mirrored in the form, right? 
because the format of the different texts is very diverse and fluid. And yeah, as I mentioned before, there are poems, there are interviews, there are first-person essays. So yeah, why did you choose to replicate this heterogeneity in the form as well? I think that first, uh, this broad range of formats allows readers to relate more to some forms than others. And I personally, I didn't want to impose a format. I wanted everyone to be able to, um, to participate on their own terms. Otherwise, that would have already narrowed the scope of the project and reduced the number or type of uh, participants. Uh, academic formats reduce the possibilities and modes of knowledge production and it's part of something I w would call a class struggle. We can speak and we can be heard it reminds me something I've read recently in a book uh, by Catherine uh, McKittrick, her last book, uh, which is called Dear Science. I, I would like to read the quote if I can find it. Dear Science argues that black people have always used interdisciplinary methodologies to explain, explore and story the world because thinking and writing and imagining across a range of texts, disciplines, stories and genres unsettles suffocating and dismal and insular racial logics by employing interdisciplinary methodologies and living interdisciplinary world, black people bring together various sources and texts and narratives to challenge racism. How black people bring together various sources and texts and narratives not to capture something or someone, but to question the analytical work of capturing and the desire to, to capture something or someone. End of the quote. So I really don't want to sound pretentious and to uh, tell to say that uh, Afro-Trans is like uh, dear science and uh, no, but I feel close to this uh, way of thinking and the words of Catherine McKittrick are really um, speaking to me. And we really believe in alternative ways of creating knowledge. And I also think that the fact that someone chooses a specific format, it tells us something about them, about who they are. And that's why I wanted this heterogeneity to be present, even though it was more difficult to organize, to put uh, together as a, as a book. But I am happy about it because it creates different reasons, different vocabularies, and it mirrors the heterogeneity of the group of people who made Afro-Trans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so you were the one taking these decisions because you were the publishing director for the book. Um, it's the person basically who supervises, organizes and edits things at the end. Um, how did you proceed? How did you embody this role? At first, I didn't have any particular request apart from the fact that the text shouldn't have been published before. Uh, of course, um, with some people, uh, we discussed what they wanted to write about beforehand, but we only had these conversations to let them know that there was no good or bad content. Um, I told them uh, this is a project that uh, 
gathers about 10 black trans people uh, so feel free to speak your, your truth feel free to speak your mind uh, and there was almost no proofreading afterwards um, some people I helped by like asking them questions uh, to help them write their, their text and uh, some sometimes I would say okay I don't think this is the right text for this project but it was very rare I just had to choose sometimes between some text and we we did some uh, orthographical corrections and syntactic maybe uh, one thing I stressed was that they didn't have to write about being trans uh, they had to choose uh, their subject their interest and I trust them on this uh, anonymity and safety were also central issues for me so I didn't want it to be an obstacle so I insisted on the fact that everyone should write about things they are comfortable sharing it was important to me that no one be in danger or feel in danger and I would say I am more cautious about that because of a difficult experience I had I went through uh, it was like a couple of years ago um, and I don't remember when it was about Marianne et le Garçon Noir uh, Leonora Miano's collection of texts to which I had uh, contributed and uh, you know when I'm alone in front of a piece of paper I don't really think about what I'm writing um, uh, I, I think about it but I, I am really in my mind I don't care about other people so um, with this particular project in Marianne et le Garçon Noir when I realized that I wasn't ready uh, from a psychological point of view uh, I wasn't ready for the world to see what I had written it was already too late and in fact nothing really bad happened uh, but I had a lot of anxiety and uh, it was a really difficult period and I often think about this traumatic psychological experience and I don't want nobody to go through the same thing uh, that is why I really wanted people to feel safe I would say cover your tracks if you need to use nicknames pen names we don't need anyone to sacrifice themselves I want you to feel comfortable when the book is out in the world I want you to feel safe and some people in fact ended up refusing after accepting initially and I can understand that I never insisted uh, it was just uh, an opportunity I uh, introduced to people and uh, they were free to take it or not uh, and of course it has not been easy as a process to do the book uh, it's a complicated subject and everyone has their own temporality and the quarantine didn't help at all but Yes, the book is here now. Yeah, it worked in the end. Um, to ask you a bit more about the people who participated, uh, you write in the introduction that the book is not an activist inventory, état des lieux militants en français, and that these people are simply, I quote, experts of their own experience, which is enough. Um, can you explain a bit more what you meant by that? First of all, about the obvious, yes, people uh, know what they are going through and uh, I think they are competent. Uh, yes, they are experts of their own lives and they know what they are writing about. It's not an external perspective and uh, they didn't have to come from some kind of uh, university or, or academic uh, perspective uh, 
the thing about uh, activist work. If I look at, at myself, for example, even if I had done some activist work which can be linked to black trans identities, we uh, as a collective have been working for 11 years on many other issues. So yes, I am an activist myself, but I am not only or exclusively a trans activist. I'm a black trans person that is doing activism. It's another thing. And a lot of trans people, black or not, are activists, but their activism can be about a lot of things. And activism is just very broad and was not a criteria to choose contributors. Uh, moreover, pretending to be able to present a kind of a state of play of activism seems both too ambitious and maybe pretentious and too limited to constraining um, and maybe this would presuppose or imply uh, the existence of a homogeneous black trans activism in France uh, which is not the case um, and it would mean taking the risk of showcasing a sort of elite, a group of leader activists and uh, I wasn't also not interested in making the book carry uh, the burden of cataloging, uh, listing all current uh, struggles uh, that trans people face today in France in one book because yes there are too many and also uh, some of the contributors uh, they don't even live in France Kuchenga lives in Berlin uh, Black Casper is in Quebec and finally uh, the people who wrote the book they face oppression that are often related uh, to their existence as black people and uh, it is true that as black trans people we can experience these things differently but uh, our struggle are, are black people's struggles uh, so the, the question really was what matters to us today as black trans people from France and from elsewhere. What drives us? How do we live? Uh, how did we grow up? And of course, a lot of other questions. Yeah, exactly. And in your writings, you talk a lot about your heritage and ancestors. And you say at some point, I quote, in the global narrative, our ancestral trans identities have been obscured or disqualified. Our contemporary Afro-trans identities have been recolonized by Western paradigms, cultural imperialism, etc. Um, so is the book a response to this recolonization and whitening of trans identity? Um, is it a reminder that black trans people also exist and have always existed? And that transness cannot be thought through a white and western lens only. I would say that white people know that black trans people exist. Uh, in fact, uh, some black trans women like Laverne Cox or Janet Mock are deeply involved in the society of spectacle. Do white people want to listen to black trans people? It's another question and I don't think so. Uh, can black trans women be heard and seen in other complexity? Not really. However, my main goal was to foster dialogues within the black community itself. I don't think about white people when I do things like that. In my text, uh, Je Chante L'Amour Collectif, I tried to remind the readers through a historiographical survey that many different forms of gender complexities have existed 
and still exist today, and that the imperialist norms that have created uh, this Western version of transgender identity continue to suppress and deny our existence. Uh, whether we're talking about uh, Yandaudu in Nigeria or maybe Tharimbav in Madagascar, Gorjigan in Senegal or Kimbandas in Central Africa, uh, it is crucial to acknowledge that there have been many trans experiences, there are still many trans experiences within the African continent and the African diaspora that globalization tends to erase. And those identities, they are way more complex when it comes to gender binaries. And there is also this deep relationship between gender complexities and faith, religious expression, uh, through possession cults. And um, you can find it all over the continent and throughout the, the black diaspora. Um, I always feel this. Uh, it is extremely essentializing and imperialistic to think that we could all agree on a single definition, on a common vocabulary on transgender identity, and that we could all agree on modes of expression to define our realities. Um, this really hinders the possibility of looking for historical traces of black trans identities. If we conceive trans identities only through the lens of how they have been defined within the Western world, it prevents us from uh, searching for, from, from finding what they may have been elsewhere. For example, if medicalization is a sole yardstick to measure, to judge who is trans or not, it is obvious that experiences that are not recent or modern, experiences that matter to us as black trans people, those experiences are going to be left out, disqualified or squashed by modern definitions and um, Western vocabulary of the transgender identities. Yeah, and the diasporic aspect also explains why many of you in the book tell stories that are rooted in the so-called overseas territories, like uh, Guadeloupe, Reunion Island, um, but also, as you mentioned before, in the UK or in Canada. Um, so what can we say about this geographical diversity present in the book and about this, um, I quote, plurality of Afro-diasporic and transnational histories? I would say that as black people, we are populations born out of displacement. For example, I descend from the transatlantic slave trade and we all as black people come from deportation, migration or both. And this movement, it still goes on. Uh, the African diaspora is constantly being rebuilt, recomposed, being woven, unraveling and being woven again and again. and. Uh, if you think about the people in the book, for example, I have never met the uh, incredible Kushanga, but we are close because we have been discussing, sharing for a while, and this is something that is specific to our black communities, this circulation of ideas uh, throughout the black diaspora. We constantly create connection, we constantly reconnect with one another. It seems obvious to me that as people coming from diasporic trajectories, we continue to move, we continue to carry stories from several territories. They, they cannot be told from a, 
from single players or, or just from friends. Uh, that is why black conversation involves many territories and continents and we keep moving because it is the stuff we are made of. And in my personal experience, uh, I didn't grow up in Guadeloupe. I grew up in the north of France, but I often went to Guadeloupe and it's part of my gender construction. And as I say, as I wrote in one of my texts, uh, my experience with Guadeloupe uh, have often been one of support and freedom when it came to gender-related issues. Yeah, and a question that goes hand-in-hand hand with the previous one, because it's also about space and territories. Um, in the book, Sikalari, so one of the writers, speaks of a vision where the body and the knowledge of the body are conceived and articulated from the periphery. Well, this is usually assigned to central spaces, such as um, the city center or Paris Intramuros in, the, in this case. Um, you also talk uh, about the importance of speaking from the province, uh, this other margin, as you put it. Um, so I wanted to know what role this tension between center and periphery or center and margin play in the book and in your lives in general. I really like the parallel Sikalari draws between contested bodies and contested spaces. Her piece, uh, The Grand Ensemble, is amazing. And it really sparked my personal experience growing up black in the provinces and in the, in the remote countryside of the French Flanders made me who I am today and I always felt like um, I would say a discrepancy between the way the black experience was predominantly depicted uh, from Paris and around and Ile-de-France and the hyper-isolation I was experiencing in the countryside of the north of France and The, the kind of racial violence I was subjected to was also different. I guess that's why I always believed in the necessity of highlighting a multiplicity of voices, of black voices. Our experiences do not come down to Paris and its suburbs. This hegemony flattens the black experience. But we know that in places where black people are very few, uh, racism is, is going to manifest itself in a specific way. Um, we cannot assume that just because the majority of black people live in Paris or around Paris, uh, that this is what life looks like for every black person in France. And I also feel like there is always this urge to reproduce or to enunciate a sort of authentic, singular, monolithic identity. Um, I suppose this is linked to the wish to centralize everything, but also to this constant tension between the collective and the individual that forces us to choose one specific one single experience and identity in the end, as it, it was too difficult to keep in mind that each black person in France experiences different things, uh, each black person in France has different life experiences, often for geographical reasons, but other reasons like gender, class, and, and so on. And if you create a narrative that implies that if you're black and especially if you're black and trans, you're bound to end up in Paris, you're not only erasing the potential of envisioning a livable life in other places in France, but there is also this misleading focus on Paris 
that makes us believe that everything happens in Paris, everything happens there, and it is all the more an issue because it gives the impression that analysis always come from these centers and that the French black experience could only be sought from Paris. And if you you stay on this path, uh, you end up thinking that the black experience in general could only be understood from the US and this is super constraining. Uh, and it's wrong, it, it's a false idea. So even though we cannot encompass every experience, I mean it's hard, but it, it is imperative that we refute the, the idea of a center. There can't be any center of the black experience because there is no single black experience. As black trans people, we live in cities like Nantes, Lille, Marseille, we live in the countryside, we live in former um, colonial territories, uh, in territories that are still colonized. Uh, this life must be told, must be heard, and they bring more complexity. They must be integrated in all the analysis about black experiences, uh, to show how complex and diverse our lives are and it's also about accuracy uh, but yeah we also that's my opinion uh, we think and reflect in a different manner from those margins uh, we produce other analyses and uh, the text of uh, the brilliant, wonderful essay of Thicolari is the proof of that. Um, I think that we look at the world differently because we're not on the same margin. And it's also important, crucial, to remind people that we don't necessarily always want to escape from these places and not everyone dreams of living in Paris one day or in the um, United States or, or I don't know where. Uh, for example, I hate Paris, but that's, that's not the matter here. But uh, we don't necessarily want to escape from our margin. And I must add to finish my answer that I was deeply influenced by Caribbean thinkers such as Edouard Glissant and the way he conceptualized the periphery. Okay, yeah. And I can imagine that the decision to integrate other languages than French in the book, such as Creole and English, was also driven by this, uh, by this goal to translate a plurality of experiences and voices. A long time ago, I was deeply influenced by Edouard Glissant, again, and Patrick Chamoiseau, who tackled issues uh, linked to language, especially focusing on diglossia in the Caribbean, in Martinique. And I think that's why I stopped saying language only as a tool. It is not language shapes how we think, how we look at and understand the, the world, um, our environment. For example, today the vocabulary that the French language offers us to talk about trans identity flattens the reality of our experiences in decolonizing the mind Ngugi Wachongo explains it very well and shows how the supremacy of colonial languages impoverishes our experiences and keeps us at a certain distance from our direct environment. Uh, since the beginning of Cadrebel, we've had this wish to decentralized knowledge and to welcome 
other languages when it was possible. Um, so when I realized that we could incorporate Creole in the book, I instantly seized the opportunity. It's not much, but it is important. And I don't want to blame people who only speak French or other colonial languages because that's a product, that's a, a result of colonization. Uh, but as a publishing house, we will make sure to incorporate other languages every time it is possible. And I hope we will soon be able to publish books that will be written exclusively in Creole. Yeah. And yeah, you mentioned Edouard Glissant and how you, how you have uh, inherited from his perspectives and ideas. So to follow up on that and on the question of inheritance and inspiration, um, is Afrotrans part of a lineage? You mentioned in one uh, interview that you were inspired by 90s American black gay anthologies to create the book. Is this the lineage you wanted to follow? Um, but also, how do you dialogue with the legacy while leaving something new for the next generation? What, what did you do differently this time? It seems to me that gatherings for black people as a group always in movement, in displacement, have always been very important, especially the VA, uh, the gatherings at night, where we were able to share stories, music, riddles. And it was in these moments that we could recreate a sense of community, of humanity, despite the trauma of slavery. These were places where we could express our many voices. Without these gatherings, we would have lost this sense of community and With it, the desire to act, to create together, collectively. The anthologies I have mentioned, uh, the work of Joseph Beam, Asotocent, they reproduced the tradition of this gathering by inviting people in a place or a book where they could express themselves in a group and as a group. I feel the same warmth we feel in our bodies during these gatherings when I read these anthologies. At least uh, the warmth I imagine uh, people uh, were feeling during those gatherings. So Afrotrans has inherited from this desire to create collectively and, and to see it as a necessity. I really want to thank the people who have participated because to do so you need to understand uh, deeply the meaning of it and to see it as an imperative, a collective imperative. The difference between Afrotrans and uh, the gay ontologies I talked about uh, is that in Afrotrans Only black trans people are invited to the gathering. Um, but the legacy is in how it is structured. And the difference is the type of invitation we sent. I really hope there will be other books like this one about black trans people in France or in... Uh, yeah. Creating as a group and telling our stories together is part of our tradition of resistance and survival. It is not an accident that Afrotrans is the first book that we publish as Cavrebel. Uh, this desire to create collectively is a big part of us. Okay, and then the collective also became a publishing house. And you published Afrotrans yourselves on the 11th of January this year. Um, why is it important to have your own publishing house? Is it to have uh, total control on what you publish? Uh, or to be able to do things uh, completely independently? 
We we have been doing things independently since the beginning of Cave Rebel. We are used to doing things ourselves on our own. So independence is kind of addictive and it is sacred. For us as black people, it was obvious that we will do things independently and I would never even consider uh, offering our project, a project like Afrotrans, to another publishing house. Even today, there are still not a lot of publishing houses funded by black people in France, so by adding another one, we wish to allow more voices to be heard. And having our own publishing house allows us to control everything to decide where we want to sell the book and how. And it is even more important for this book, as we know it is a topic that can generate a lot of voyeurism. And we we want the people to keep in mind that this book comes from a black-only collective, exclusively uh, composed of lesbian and bi women. It is not just another book and some or some trivial editorial product. Having our own publishing house enables us not to give in to capitalist dynamics, even the smallest one. The idea that everything can be bought and sold is pervasive, even in activist work. So as soon as you create something, you run the risk of it being turned into a commodity, all the more if you're not in full control. Also, we do not fool ourselves. We know that a lot of people who are interested in Afro-trans generally don't care about black people's lives. There is a strong desire to make black trans identities cool and sexy. We've been fighting on a lot of issues for the last 10 years and it's clear that when we produced texts or other works about the police or prison abolition, it didn't elicit the same kind of enthusiasm. Ironically, when you read the texts in Afrotrans, you realize that police violence comes up several times as well as issues related to white supremacy and racism. This sudden passion for our work is a testament to the constant disregard for black lives as a whole. If transgender experiences are the only entry point into the book for some people, that's a problem, a real problem. What about our people who are detained, assaulted at borders, deported, locked up in detention centers? These people, they are us. This is our lives. If people are only interested in us when we are trans, it sucks. And this is the very essence, I would say the true nature of racist dynamics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to talk a bit more about this aspect, actually. Um, so Cazrebel wrote a manifesto against the book Sex, Race, Colonie a few years ago. And you personally wrote Negritude Spectaculaire, a text about the constant spectacularization and aesthetization of black people's uh, sufferings and joys. Um, So does the format of Afro-Trans, which is a compilation of intimate, personal, poetic, written stories, allow you to, I mean, in a way, to counter this potential voyeurism and fetishization of the content of the book and of your experiences? Uh, First, the fact that there are no images in the book kind of limits the potential uh, voyeuristic dynamic. Uh, However, I think that it's a constant struggle because we cannot prevent people from engaging in 
aestheticization and voyeurism. People can always interpret something their way. And I cannot tell you, I cannot be sure that Afro-trans is protected from any kind of spectacularization, but at least we really had this problematic in mind when we created the book. Uh, and for example, we had this in mind when we uh, tried to um, construct, to choose which which text would come first and so on. Um, but I believe that social media have emphasized this habit of spectacularization and even if it comes from a long history I talk about this history in uh, my future book Negritude Spectaculaire it is very difficult today to make uh, people understand that it is for example not necessary to post a video a video showing police violence you can describe what you saw talk about it but do not post the video we are we are not all equal in front of these violent and traumatic images and we have a responsibility when we share content and often i saw this in uh, in social media uh, people always posted uh, the story of some trans women being murdered and that that was the only thing they were posted about uh, trans people but similarly to violent content uh, if beautiful content can be pleasing for the eye it can also be very toxic which reminds me of Ellen Bemet's powerful contribution. Uh, her text is called Polaroid Girl. Uh, and it seems that people really enjoy it. They are okay to see black trans people, especially people that are considered beautiful. Uh, and yes, it's really damaging for people that are not beautiful uh, the way uh, people think trans people should be beautiful and I think that images confine us uh, as well as the idea of conceptualizing political issues throughout the lens of representation and visibility and uh, as black trans people we know for sure that visibility without safety is worthless and beauty is really a toxic and white uh, concept. Yeah, so you created the collective Case Rebelle in 2011, which you describe as a pan-afro-revolutionary collective. Um, can you explain a bit more what you mean with the pan-afro-revolutionary? and why you decided to use that term exactly to define uh, Case Rebelle? Uh, it's a term we coined uh, because when we started Case Rebelle, we didn't want to define ourselves as just only a, a feminist or queer or anti-racist. Uh, we, we were trying to be revolutionary and we still do. And we wanted to uh, fight, at least to try to fight all the fights, all the struggles. And yes, we wanted to tell that our aim as black people was to be revolutionary on all fronts. Uh, that's the meaning of pan. Uh, which mean all and Afro was for black obviously and uh, revolutionary yes like I told you we're trying to be good revolutionaries or bad 
bad revolutionaries. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I wanted to finish with a quote by American filmmaker and activist Tourmaline, who recently stated on Instagram, I quote, I am not satisfied with black trans lives mattering. I want black trans lives to be pleasurable and to be filled with lush opportunities. Um, do you embrace this concept of pleasure activism and or the concept of joyful militancy? Um, these are two different concepts, but I wanted to know uh, what you thought about this idea of finding joy in activism but also about the idea that feeling joy and pleasure can be uh, can be a revolutionary practice for for uh, for oppressed people and for black people especially to be honest i'm always uncomfortable with these bold clear-cut statements on social media it is as if it was easy and personally i'm dealing with different traumas, joy and pleasure are complex notions for me and from a class perspective I am very far from lush opportunities and that's not what I am about. I'm about anti-capitalist revolution, period. I may never feel wholly joyful or feel pure pleasure because of my struggle with my mental health but you don't fix people by telling them to be happy or to relax or to, to enjoy. Um, I feel that these injunctions can be very guilt-inducing. It also reminds me of some star activism uh, where at a certain point you have to market your character with narratives of life-changing choices and bullshit like that. Statements are just statements. Systemic dynamics are real. But yes, pleasure in, in activism and joy, it is important when we, Cas uh, Rebel, when we translated Asatasha autobiography, we could feel in the text the pleasure of doing things collectively, of sharing, uh, discussing, even arguing, laughing. Uh, that is clearly what keeps us going as well. You can't change the world if you're always angry. You also need love, pleasure and joy in what you're doing, even if it is activism. Uh, and I think it's crucial overall in life to to find, to know what feels good, what gives us joy, and to energize ourselves with that. But yeah, this has its limitation. Casrebel is my family. They are part of my daily life. We try to experience enjoyable things together, but we all go through life with our wounds. And some of them will never will never heal. Not everything can be healed, and joy is not as simple as uh, as the world. People do not like to be reminded of this fact because of the whole personal development discourse that is sold as a path to liberation. But yeah. I have dealt with psychiatric issues since I am a kid, so yes, joy is a complex world and a complex concept. And usually I'm not okay with those kind of statements. Yeah, that's that's very interesting and it's definitely something to to reflect on. Thank you so much. Is there something else you wanted to add before we finish this interview? Yes, love. I just wanted to add that even if there were many difficulties, there was also a lot of love involved in the making of Afrotrans between me and the other writers. There was a lot of love in the collective Casrebel as well. 
and it is what keeps us going, being there for each other, caring deeply for each other and looking out for one another. I really, really hope readers will feel it in the book. Thank you so much for having me, Emily, and many, many thanks to the Phenomenalist. Bye. Yes, we can definitely feel it. Thank you so much, Michaela. It was a pleasure talking to you. I'm really looking forward to discover Cas Rebelle's next publications and projects. Thank you, everyone. This podcast is produced by The Phenomenalist. You can listen to dozens of other episodes on your favorite podcast platforms and on our website at thephenomenalist.net.